Testing, testing, one, two, three. All right, you can hear me, right? That sounds good, we've got sound. So that is great. All right. Good morning, it's nice to, nice to have you here today. I know there's some still coming in. Um, if you, if you would, you could open up a Bible to Hebrews chapter 4 to begin. There is a lot to talk about. A lot to cover, long way to go, and not a long time to get there. So, <laughs> I don't know. Are there... You'll reveal something about yourself if you if you raise your hand to this, but are there any like Grateful Dead fans here? <laughs> no, you know they. Uh, Jerry Garcia has a, uh, a a line in a song where he says, uh, "A nine mile skid on a ten mile ride." <laughs> think that, think about that for a second. Nine mile skid on a ten mile ride. That's. That's rolling. That's what we're going to do. Nine-mile skid on a ten-mile ride. All right. So, um, Hebrews chapter 4. So, we, last week we talked about Shiloh and the notion of rest and a re- Jesus as our rest giver. And in the Bible, there's quite a bit there uh, as we saw in Genesis and in Zechariah, different places uh, where there's this, this shadowy figure on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Moving in and providing us a way into the promised land. And Jesus, as we know, is our rest. You know, we think about creation, And how God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh day. And we also know that we have the Sabbath rest, right? Uh, And if you remember back from your catechism days, the way Luther interprets that commandment, it's Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And every time that we're able, we come to listen to God's word and receive his gifts, and uh, we, are, we are entering his rest uh, by hearing the word. So Hebrews chapter 4 provides us with a little insight. So let's take a look at this. So my version today is the New King James Version. And it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For, he who have, for we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world." For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, 
Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. So what is interesting about that is that kind of comes on the heels of last week's study where we did spend time looking at Joshua and the rest and entering Shiloh, right? They entered Shiloh. And if you remember from Joshua, Shiloh was the place where the tent of meeting was. And now Hebrews 4 is saying Joshua didn't really give them the rest. The true rest is in the Lord. So it's commentary. Hebrews 4 is commentary on all that stuff we looked at last week. Now, what I would like to do today is look at a specific situation in the Gospel of John to show how the depth of the rest that Jesus brings. So if you would, let's open up to John's Gospel and John's gospel is interesting on so many levels. There's the theme of light, for one thing, but there's also in the midst of John's gospel uh, a movement. And it starts right off the bat where John the Baptist is saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's this pointing in this directional gaze look to Jesus, look to Jesus, and now watch what he does. And so John's gospel kind of goes bumpity-bump, and there's Jewish themes all throughout, like signposts that point the way, and there's symbolism. And so just in terms of John's gospel, you'll see a lot of imagery about light. Along with that, the signposts are, there's the Feast of Tabernacles, and there's the Feast of Dedication, and then there is the Passover. And What's remarkable, does anybody know what the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated? There's a harvest. Yeah. Yeah, what it, so what it was was booths. It's also called Sukkoth and the Festival of Booths. And it commemorated the wandering in the desert when they had to live in tents or booths. Did you say that? Okay, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you. There was, yeah, good job. Um, <laughs> and uh, so there's this wandering and heading to the promised land, okay? So with tabernacles, they were out in the desert. They were relying on God for food and water. 
and they were waiting, and so they were trying to get to Shiloh, but the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Sukkoth is waiting for that to happen. So along with this is the theme of waiting. And this is one of the things I'd like to focus on today is the notion of waiting. And waiting is not easy, as we know. Then the Feast of Dedication itself commemorated the restoration of the temple. And this is also called the Festival of Lights. And also Hanukkah. And then we know the Passover is all about the atonement, right? So in John's Gospel, there, Jesus, had, his ministry has a movement embedded in the Gospel of John that goes in line with these. So first, in John 7, verse 2, is the signpost statement that it's the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And then later in uh, 1021 or 1022, 1022 is the signpost statement about it's time for the Feast of Dedication. And then you get to John chapter 12, I believe. And it says, 12 verse 1, six days before the Passover. So Jesus himself is moving along according to these, these Jewish signposts. Now, what's, when we think about the Feast of Tabernacles, it was the feast. So these were obligatory feasts if you were a Jewish person. You had to make the journey to Jerusalem and to the temple for these. These were mandatory. This one, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or Sukkoth, was also an open invitation for all the Gentiles. So it was a harvest, it was a harvest uh, festival, but it was also looking outward to all nations. So it had a slightly different scope. So this all leads us then to what I would like to look at today, which is Jesus, uh, the, the Good Shepherd discourse in John chapter 10. And it's going to spin into what follows. So let's take a look at this, John chapter 10. Most assuredly, so let's just kind of meditate upon this and think about it a little bit. So Jesus, he starts off here in chapter 10 and he says, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. <clears throat> the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And then it goes on. And then in verse 22 is the statement, now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem and it was winter. And it continues on and then the Jews try to stone Jesus and then it shifts and we get to chapter 11. And, you know, there's so many themes, there's so much symbolism running here because you have this, you know, etched in the minds of the hearers, the wandering in the desert with Israel, in, you know, coming out of Egypt. You have the reminiscence of when the people died in the wilderness and, you know, the absence of light, right? But there's this feeling of darkness. There. They keep wandering and they're in great need and there's great struggle and then there's great frustration and then there's sin. And I mean, it really mirrors the human life where we are the same way. You know, we, we come out, we're excited. We know there's a, there's a destination up ahead and we can't wait till we get there, right? Your kids, right? Like when you're going on vacation and everybody's excited because you're going on vacation. And, and everybody knows where they're going and we can't wait to get there. And then you get on this arduous journey 
and you know, you know, 45 minutes in, are we there yet? How long is it going to be? Hey, change the radio station. I can't stand that, you know. And, you know, right? Your vacation can mirror wanderings of, of, of Israel, you know. And you just can't wait to get there. And really, the Christian life is so much in waiting. And in the waiting is where the distress happens. And, you know, you have Christ, our Savior, and you know the narrative, you know, you see the crucifix, you know that he has won this salvation for you, you know you're going to heaven, and yet at the same time, the, you get caught up in the world. You're caught up in all of the variables of difficulty and not getting to exactly where you need to get. And this happens with all kinds of things, right? This can happen with looking for a job. Uh, this can happen with an, an illness where you're trying to get better. Um, this can even happen with children when you can't wait to get to the next stage. <laughs> Teenagers, what? Nobody prepared me for this, you know? Um, and so here you, you're going to get to chapter 11 where you have Lazarus and, you know, you have Mary and Martha and, you know, you have these people that have been following Christ and they've been listening to his teachings and they know on some level that he is the one. He is the one provided, you know, and of course the disciples don't really get it until their resurrection, but you know, they can see this guy can do great things. He is, he is the person we need to follow. He says he's the savior. And so let's now, you hear the good shepherd discourse. Now let's switch to chapter 11 and listen to the account where the church waits. Now a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, wait a minute. Now, pastorally, that wouldn't work very well. <laughs> I love them so much, I'm not going to go see them yet. <laughs> and, you know, so he's sick. He waits, and so the Lord then waits two more days. Then after, he, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he goes in the opposite direction. 
Now, just if you just think about this for a second, this on some level is the Christian life where we pray to God, we say our prayers, and then we wait. And I often, someday I'll, I'll talk about this more extensively, but I think about this in terms of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think the, this is just kind of like, I'm not dogmatic about this, but it's up for kind of thought and discussion. I think the Christian life exists on some level in between those two petitions. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so now this is the Christian life toggling back and forth, back and forth between your prayers and the time when Jesus answers your prayers. And this is the part that makes people, um, it puts us to the test, right? It takes us to the edge of the cliff sometimes. Lord, I'm weak. Lord, there are things going on in my life or this person's life or uh, one of the lives of my children or my sister or my brother or my parents and I really need you to answer this prayer and then you wait. And a lot of people, well, not a lot. I should say it like this. Sometimes people grow weak or they, they move, they distance themselves from Jesus in times like this when they don't perceive that their prayers are being answered. And unfortunately, some people have left the faith over these kinds of scenarios where they feel like, well, I pray to God. I mean, pastorally, I've heard this in pastoral care many times where people have said, well, pastor, I pray. You know, I'll say, pray, for, pray about this. And they'll say, I have. I've been praying for a long time about this. And I don't seem to have an, I, I don't see God's answer I don't see that he has dealt with my issue at all. And maybe on the surface, we can't see. But there is a lot going on in between. There is a lot going on spiritually that the Lord is addressing and shaping you in what you consider to be unanswered prayers. And has any, I mean, you've experienced this, right? You, you know what this is, right? You, you've had this on some level where God seems to be silent. And we have a lot of examples in the Bible. You know, you have Job, you know, James chapter 5 talks about steadfast, the steadfastness of Job and how he endured. But, you know, if you've ever read that book, he's, you know, he says early on, why is light given to someone in darkness? So Job feels like I'm sitting in darkness. I am lost. Why is God still blessing me. And, you know, there are places like in Proverbs where this is not a direct quotation, but I'm just kind of remembering it and putting it in my own words. But 
two places in Proverbs where they talk about how danger comes ahead and the, the prudent wait and then the evil passes by, but the simple pass on and suffer for it. So there's something about like, how do you put it into words? It, like spiritual growth in waiting. But I look at it like you, you, pray, you say your prayers and then you take a step back and then you, you watch and wait as you continue to listen to the scriptures. And there's something that goes on spiritually in the waiting. If it goes one way, if we're listening to the scriptures and going to the Eucharist, it goes a different way if we retreat to the world and to the flesh. Does that make sense? So if we, in our waiting and in our frustration, if we retreat to the world and to the flesh, um, something happens with our energy and our anger and our frustration, our emotions, and it can spin, it can spin into a recklessness, a certain recklessness, certain spiritual recklessness perhaps. But if we, list, if we keep looking at the face of Jesus and we go to the Eucharist in our waiting, then what he does is he teaches us about patient endurance and we begin to look around and we learn things, we grow wise. And the family of Lazarus, they are caught in this waiting game where they know Lazarus is sick, they've seen Jesus heal people, now they've communicated it to Jesus. Now if he would just come. And so it continues here. He says in verse seven, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. Now, think about that in terms of John 10, 22, that says now it was the Feast of Dedication. Now he, so it's the Feast of Dedication, and he's saying, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So he's using the Festival of Lights imagery about himself. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the, the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. So they don't understand it. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, I think I might have mentioned this to you before last year when we were together. But, you know, three days is the time of Christ's death and resurrection, right? But three days also meant a temporary situation. I th maybe you remember this when I say this. It's like if your mother-in-law came to stay with you and she only stayed three days, that was good because that was a sign that she was leaving. It was temporary. But if she stays four days in the Jewish world, she's never leaving. <laughs> it's permanent. So it's sort of like etiquette. You know, you never stay more than three days. Okay? So that's why in this case, it's four days and not three. Because it's signifying a state of permanence. It cannot be undone. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. So she has faith. Martha really has this great faith. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come to come into the world. Now, there's a lot going on here. And there's this information here that she went her way. She called Mary. The teacher is calling for you. So then Mary comes, and when she gets there, she fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been, with, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is in verse 32. And then Jesus saw her weeping. The Jews came with her weeping. He groans in the spirit. He's troubled. And then he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Verse 37 is critical because it's the recognition that he perhaps was a great prophet or someone that could do great things, but even he has limitations. And so there's this thought running through this chapter that if Jesus had just not waited, then he could have taken care of it. But since he waited, it's too late. How often do people feel the same way when they think about God today? You know, I prayed to God and I prayed to God and I prayed to God and he didn't answer my prayer. And so there's nothing now that can happen. Uh, the person I love is too sick. 
Um, the person I love has died. These things make it hard for the journey of faith. But, you know, if you think about other things like Matthew's gospel, where he says in chapter six, do not be anxious, right? Do not worry about you, what you will eat. Do not worry, worry about clothing. Seek first the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So, so often in our waiting, this is my thoughts and I'd love to hear what, what you think too about this. I, I, I think that in waiting, spiritual waiting is when God, what he is primarily doing is he is moving us away from the things of this world and he is moving us to really seek the things of, of heaven, to seek the things of eternal righteousness. And that's why you see like a seasoned Christian, like, you know, many of you are, or maybe all of you are, and you have learned in your own life through things that didn't go the way that you thought they would or should, that you, in a sense, have stripped off the things of this world and the spiritual life really is the, is the key, is the focus. So then in verse 38, <clears throat> Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. This, these chapters follow one after another with great precision because what you have here in the death of Lazarus is the fulfillment of the Good Shepherd Discourse. If you look back to chapter 10, verse 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And then go down to verse 
27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is exactly what happens in the raising of Lazarus. He's in the tomb where there's only death. So there's no life and no light, only darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, comes to the tomb and he simply speaks, Lazarus, come forth. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. And that's what it's all about. So somewhere in the midst of all of this, you have the, the resurrection, but you also have perhaps maybe an answer to a life of waiting where this is the goal. If Jesus doesn't readily answer your prayers or he doesn't answer them in the way that you think, it's because he wants you to hear his voice clearly and simply follow him. All the things of the world end in the tomb. But Jesus calls us out of it all. He is stripping us away in every suffering, every bit of suffering, Jesus is stripping us away from our reliance on the world and the flesh and our own earthly ease and our own earthly peace. And he is shifting us to find a different peace, a spiritual peace, a spiritual rest. And this is Shiloh. This is why Hebrews 4 says Joshua didn't give them rest because that was a physical rest. The true rest is in Jesus. And in him, the, the world can be falling apart all around the church, but the church is still resting in hope and a certain calm. And, you know, then you look forward you get into St. Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts. And it seems like everything's falling apart. You know, he gets over there and he starts preaching. And what do they do? But they stone him to death. And so to the casual onlooker, the thought is, well, that didn't go very well, <laughs> right? Well, that was a bust. And yet, if you read on, they are, the disciples and the church are then scattered. And then as the church is scattered, more, more happens. And so the things that one didn't anticipate actually lead to other really good things. And so that's my, my point is, I think, just simply this, that the Lord is, and you know this, right? The Lord is doing so much good around you in other people's lives and even in your life that you can't 
perceive. The Lord's teaching, the Lord's holiness, the Lord's example, it's all spinning outward into different places and in different ways. And so let's continue on in John's gospel. Because in chapter 12, now you have Shiloh, that shadowy figure from Genesis 49 and from Zechariah now comes to bear. The shadowy figure of Shiloh becomes clear. The world's rest with the Palm Sunday procession. So in chapter 12, it says, here's the signpost. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised, was who had been dead, who had been raised from the dead. Then they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So you have the people that now, in the scene, the people that were directly related to the situation of waiting and then fulfillment. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And you know, these things kind of come out a little bit with Judas, by the way. Like in the upper room, one of you will betray me. And then they all start going around the table. Was it I, Lord? Was it I, Lord? And Jude, so they all use the word Lord. And uh, Lazarus uses a different word. He doesn't call him Lord. I can't remember which one it was. It's either rabbi or master. But he, he, uses, a, he uses a completely different word. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. So here's one too about Judas. He was a thief. He had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not always have. And then now, can you imagine, this is just kind of a side note, but can you imagine poor Lazarus? He gets raised from the dead. And then what do they decide to do? But the the Jewish people are trying to kill him again. They're like, we got to kill this guy. Because he's now, he's, he's evidence number one, right? Of Christ's ability to raise the dead now. Then we get to verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, whom they had heard that, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. 
Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So all of this kind of works together. You have the good shepherd discourse. My sheep hear my voice. They know me and they follow me and I will give them eternal life. Then you have Lazarus who dies. Then you have Jesus waiting, which is the spiritual life on earth. And then Lazarus is raised. And now Lazarus is the image and the evidence of the resurrection and the true power of Christ. What's happening in John's gospel is there's this constant, hey, come follow me, I'm the light of the world. Hey, watch this. Hey, I'm the light of the world. Hey, watch this. Hey, watch this. And then, boom, the raising of Lazarus in John's gospel is the dynamite that blows everything apart in the gospel. Everything changes after the raising of Lazarus. the, The momentum of the gospel shifts. Up to that point, it's just this constant back and forth. Watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this. Now the world is going crazy. This is why the Pharisees say in verse 19, look, the world has gone after him. You have accomplished nothing. And also, John's gospel points out, which I don't think the other gospels do, that the people gathered because they had seen and heard that he had raised Lazarus. And it goes on, and then you finally get to, by the way, in John chapter 12, when you get to verse 35, here's more of the Feast of Dedication language. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And this, by the way, just as a footnote, this is Jesus' last appeal to the Jews in John's gospel. Because then after that, Where is that? There is the, I can't find it, but there is the, the statement that the, um, the Gentiles come and they wish to see Jesus. Verse 20. 
Yeah, thank you. So this this like brings several this brings a few of the themes together too, because you know you had the Feast of Tabernacles, which as I said isn't just wasn't just for the Jewish people, but it was for all nations to come. So now you have this and weaving into this and preparing for this. But now you have the Greeks who come and say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So now you also have this thematic shift into Jesus comes for, for the world, for all nations. So what this does is it demonstrates for all of us the concept of Shiloh. You know, it's bringing Old Testament themes together and Jesus now rides in as the fulfillment of this Shiloh figure in the Old Testament. He is the rest giver. He, he brings rest to weary souls. He raises the dead and gives them eternal life. He brings light into the midst of darkness. He comes for Jew and Gentile alike and the world explodes. And now, then from that point on, it moves to his, the preparation for his passion, the upper room, and then everything that follows. The apostles were well aware of the notion of waiting. And James chapter five, if you would go there and just take a look at what he says here, Bless you. James chapter 5, uh, looking at verse 7 and following. James 5, verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold the judges standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Now that in and of itself is very valuable but then what James does is he adds another component to how we wait. And that's what follows. So he says then, so he, he talked about waiting and persevering and being patient. Now he gives you another, another bit to add to that. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? 
let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And there ends the epistle. Now, why does he end it that way? That's a great mystery why he ends it that way, but my, part of my theory is that he ends it that way because he's trying to teach a church in waiting because James, the bishop of Jerusalem, that church saw a lot of waiting, a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty. And he is saying, hey, the journey's not over. Let's keep going. And so as we say our prayers and as we wait, this is how we deal with it. Because what happens when we suffer? We often retreat into a, a posture of solitude. But what's he doing? He's saying to extend yourself into the lives of others. Let others extend themselves into your life. So particularly as you wait, because see, not even just suffering, but if you're cheerful, sing psalms. So in everything, as you pray and as you wait, let people in. Confess your sins, receive absolution, offer to pray, offer to have conversation. Let the presbyters come and anoint the sick. Right? There's this sense of community. And so this gets to the notion of the church. So a Christian life that doesn't understand the church is missing something very important because Jesus provides the church and the communion of saints and the fellowship of believers specifically so that we aid one another in the midst of the waiting. And that's how we're encouraged. We're encouraged by one another. We're reminded of the words of Jesus. We're reminded that he raises the dead. We're reminded of his teaching. We're reminded of, hey, don't be anxious. Hey, don't worry. Because Jesus has it all covered and he's going to take care of you. And his promises are sure and certain. He will not leave you. And so as you journey, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, the body of Christ, as one body we are one. Individually we are many members. And so in the mystical body of Jesus, the mystical body of the church, we journey together. 
And the Lord provides us with the strength and the joy and the peace as we're reminded of our Shiloh, the rest giver. Let us pray. O oh God, you are the strength of all who trust in you, and without your aid we can do no good thing. Grant us the help of your grace that we may please you in both will and deed. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.